Brilliant. Thank you for coming on. Oh, okay. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate this. It's, uh, I enjoy these things. I really, I really do. So it's always nice to sort of come on and, and do this sort of stuff. So um, no, thank you. Yeah, um, I've been following your content for a while, and uh, it's quite interesting. Um, do you, you. want to? Yeah, do you want to talk me through the name, the Champagne Socialist? The, the name, the Champagne Socialist name. Um, yeah. So a Champagne Socialist is basically someone who espouses socialist principles and ideals, but lives a life of privilege. Um, and it's usually a term that is used to dismiss um, a left-wing person's argument, a middle-class left-wing person's argument. Okay. Um, so I chose that name because when I was younger, I was quite, I was fairly left-wing, and it was something my mama always used to call me. Um, and then when I started doing TikTok, I thought you need a snappy username, you need good content and a good username that kind of people hear and go, oh yeah, that, that, I know that yeah, that's that's quite distinct because Harry politics who's going to want to listen to that um so for me um i chose that username uh as a way of sort of getting sort of the attention and also i think it's also because it's used to dismiss arguments i thought well if i call myself that no one's going to be able to call it call say that comment that uh, as a way of dismissing my viewpoints so i thought you know what just own it like yeah i am i'm middle class and left wing like i'm you know it's it's uh, yeah. it's just kind of those like okay like, you know what i mean is that quite a big um mm. shift towards um that kind of sect now where people from the middle class are becoming more and more left-wing yeah i think we've definitely seen that i think it's kind of you know i think when you look at i don't even know how to describe it really i definitely think when you're younger people tend to be more left-wing so i think it's regardless of, of social class really um you know i went to i, I grew up in quite well-off areas um comfortable areas and where did you grow up i um grew up on the outskirts of milton Keynes, um, okay which is where which is where i'm from uh not originally i was born in london um but um sort of so lived in quite well-off areas even though this is where i where i am where my my, my constituency is a tory safe seat though under current polling it looks like it might shift red um but no um sort of a lot of left-wing people but then it also varies as well i think um it's just kind of you know the idea that when, as you get older you progress more to the right um, yeah which i think we've seen in some cases with some people but for me personally i feel like i've kind of just stayed met very much sort of in the center a little yeah. bit to the left yeah, I think there's been studies that have shown that um, it's usually in your 30s, like early 30s to like mid 30s, when obviously um, yeah. the more educated you are, the likely the chances of you earning more money. And yeah. that's when the shift tends to happen towards more um, right wing politics. So it's interesting because when I, some of the studies I've looked at it with in terms of um, the more sort of terms of education, for example, the more educated you are, the more you tend to vote for sort of left-wing parties or more sort of left-wing policy um, or support more left-wing policy, I should say. Um, does that vary, sorry, does that vary depending yeah. on what education background you have? I think it would depend, yeah, it obviously depends on sort of your educational background. So the number of qualifications you have, what type of qualifications you have, also to the area that you live as well. Um, I think especially sort of Brexit, for example, really sort of showed that, um, sort of really sort of showed that divide in a way, um, in terms of um, how education, your your level of qualifications determined which way you voted uh, in that referendum. 
likewise with um, the 2019 general election, for example, when you look at that sort of polling. Though people who were, had higher levels of uh, uh, qualifications tended to vote either mainly Lib Dem or, or Labour. Um, but then I think that's because that was sort of like a, a rerun of the Brexit referendum. So yeah. it would be more likely that the people who um, were voting Leave would vote Conservative. Okay. So where do your politics kind of align? Because in the videos that I've seen, you don't really, uh, you don't identify just as Labour, Like you do no. kind of pick and mix, right? Yeah, no, so I've, I've kind of talked about sort of pick and mix politics, which is like the idea, kind of like you imagine like pick and mix in the cinema, you know, I'm going to take some uh, jazzies. Yeah, so you do jazzies, I'll have some chocolate raisins as well. Oh, you know what, I'll have some strawberry laces. You sort of mix and you take different things from different ideologies because every ideology, I suppose to a certain extent, does have, well, within reason, I'm not talking like extreme ideologies. I'm talking more sort of like the mainstream sort of ideologies. Yeah. They've all got points of reason um, and there are good ideas within all of those ideologies and i think if you can harness all of them and mix them together then you know maybe that could work obviously some mixes don't go together um so i'm always say that you know i don't think people could be socially liberal and economically and fiscally conservative my reasoning for that is that economic policy influences on society so yeah. in terms of um if you're advocating for, say, austerity measures, that's going to impact people on lower incomes, which means <clears> social mobility is going to be restricted. Um, so I don't see how those two can really link. I know people would disagree and people have said that they disagree and they've tried to explain it do, to me. Do you want uh, to uh, well, tell what austerity measures would include? So okay. in terms of so austerity measures, it tends to be cuts to its central, central government cuts funding to local authorities yeah. or in some cases what uh, the central government does is they say to local authorities we need you to make cuts the problem is when they're telling them to make the cuts they're expecting them to provide the same standard of service so i'll give an example northampton uh, county uh, northampton county council um in 2010 this is just one of many examples they were told you need to start making cuts um but you need but you're being expected to provide the same standard of service so when they make cuts, the first thing they do is cut non-statutory services. Now, what includes the non-statutory services is stuff like mental health, um, in term uh, also um, sort of like a youth clubs, that sort of thing, because it's not seen as essential. Um, okay. When we speak about statutory services, it's education and health; those are like the two main things. But mental health isn't wasn't actually included within uh, statutory services. Um, so they were being expected to make around things. Four hundred million. Quote me on that. I'll, I'll need to check the, uh, my, my source on that one. Um, but they were expected to be making this, uh, making all these cuts whilst providing the same standard service, which isn't feasible. Now, the the neoliberal logic at the time uh, from the coalition government was that the uh, was that the voluntary and community sector would step in where the state wasn't. Now, you fact you think sort of twenty ten to twenty twelve is what. Two, two to four years after the financial crash, where people's pockets are incredibly tight, and volunteering costs money. Um, you know, if you're earning, if you, if you, you know, if you volunteer for two hours, that's two hours worth of pay that you could be getting, but you're instead spending basically ways spending that money on helping and helping other people, which is very admirable. But not everyone can afford to volunteer. Yeah. Um, so those services don't get the support that they need. Because the logic is flawed in that sort of sense. If, am I making sense? I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, no, I, I do understand that. Um, I will push back on the wanting to be socially liberal but economically yeah. conservative because 
I'd probably put myself in that category. But yeah. when with regards to economic and uh, being economically conservative, I'd probably um, be in the uh, camp of not cutting spending to public um, yeah. services, but cutting spending to things like um, defense. I don't, um, especially with like the Ukraine war going on right now. I don't think it's fair that we're sending billions and billions, do- billions of dollars, uh, pounds paid when people c- literally can't afford to put their heating on. Yeah, but I think in regards to that, that's you know the the reason these problems are happening. It, it's for the last twelve years. It's been it's just been this build up, and then something like Ukraine happens, where um, we invest, where we you know we send money, we we send arms uh, to a country defending itself from an aggressor state um it's just a, a build-up there's more than enough to go around but it's because there are these cuts being made i think we saw with the budget um a few weeks ago which has gone down very well um with everyone uh within reason um that they are um but you know so for example a lot of their their, their spending so they're they, they've kind of said yeah uh, i don't know if you saw jeremy hunt yesterday saying yeah. that um unfortunately he's going to have to ask uh, departments to make cuts um which basically is austerity 2.0 um yeah but then austerity never really went away it's just like the 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 term kind of stopped being used around 2015 2016 but it was still going because the effects are still so long lasting um and i think also covid as well has caused has created a lot of those sort of divides um in terms of the amount of money that had to be spent on that, um, it's it's a whole sort of build up of things, really. But no, I, I do I understand the argument of you know why are we sending all this uh, all this uh, why are we sending uh, billions to to the people of Ukraine when um, you know people on on in the UK uh, you know I think they're saying twenty four million households will face fuel poverty this winter. Um, yeah, but then I I would say that there's more than enough to go around and sort of pitting two vulnerable groups against one another isn't the way it's kind of like when you know when uh, refugees come to the uk and people say well we've got homeless people on the streets and it's like there's more than enough properties there's like i think 200,000 unused properties here in the uk there's more than enough to cover the amount of refugees that come here and also the amount of homeless people here on our streets so there's more than enough to go around it's just people don't want to Act. And I think actually we saw during the pandemic when it came to homelessness, um, they put a lot of homeless people in uh, in hotels and, and, and in yeah. accommodation. So it's clear that it can be solved. It's just people don't want to solve it. Yeah, but I mean, how feasible would it be to house all the homeless people in hotels and um, Airbnbs? No, I don't. Yeah, I, I can. For I an extended period of point. time, I don't. You know, I don't know the the full uh, economic uh, sort of. Um, you say the full sort of economic logic um that would be something to have to look into it's not something i've really sort of looked into i think again with like a lot of this stuff it's sort of it's all idea and there's not yeah. the there's not like the the, the backing for it because it's something i've always thought but then as you as you said it's actually one of the biggest things i was taught at university was um i remember i said something in a, in a seminar and my lecturer said to me what do you mean by that or elaborate further and i realized I had very strong ideas about a subject. I really hadn't like really thought the logistics through. Being able to like, yeah. 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 So I think that's just, the, I think that kind of goes for everyone really. And I'm yeah. guilty of it as well. And I think uh, that's been seen now. Yeah. I think, um, especially with the Ukraine war, 
there's a lot of factors that are at play that we haven't really kind of looked into because well, you kind of have to take it all the way back where NATO is kind of encroached um, and surrounded Russia, basically, and put up um, missile defences all around Russia. So they find it threatening. And if you kind of look at the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's literally what Russia did. And we the world almost ended into a nuclear war at that point. And yeah. I think we're kind of seeing it come full circle where we are closer to probably nuclear war than we've ever been before. Things with nuclear war, it's always a last resort. And I think if they, everyone, no one wants you know, humanity, no one wants humanity to go extinct because that's what would happen in the event of a nuclear war. Yeah. I think they say it would be like what, an hour before like, and then the whole world would completely seize you know, the, the radioactive fallout. Because it's not only just like the bomb dropping and killing millions of people, it's the radioactive fallouts as well and the yeah. problems there. Um, it's why there's only been in the history of the, of the universe in the world there's only ever been two uses of um, nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki um, that is completely it in terms of with Russia feeling um, surrounded and encroached I mean you look at the way that they've sort of what they did what they've done in Georgia uh, their ally with Hungary within the European Union as well Belarus uh, the, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 is the oh, constant yeah. sort of, and also the way the Russians have infiltrated, um, sort of, you know, the term like Moscow on Thames, uh, Moscow on the Thames, um, the, the sort of Russian money that has that has seeped through um, into 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 the into, in, into Britain, um, and how it's it's been a, a play in that regard, and why it's been so difficult uh, to um, that the selling of golden visas, for example. Um, it's just this whole sort of economy that's been that's been propped up. You look at donations to the Conservative Party. Of course, you can look at the Labour Party donations, where Barry Gardner accepted money from a Chinese agent, um, which fuck knows why he did it. Um, but it's um, it's that sort of those sort of things at play. So there's a lot of fact, like you said, there's a lot of factors going on. Yeah. Um, with regards to the Conservative Party, yeah, and obviously all of the fallout that's been that's recently happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, how life is watch. it? Yeah, <laughs> it's been. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to ask, like, how likely is it that list trust is going to remain on? Because, um, you could effectively make the case that she is well out of her depth. Well, by the role. time, by the time, by the time we finish this, uh, this podcast, she might not even be prime minister. Or by the time it goes out, um, that's the thing. No one knows. I think we saw with with Kwasi Kwarteng. I don't know if you watch. Have I got news for you? It's the show that I've watched since I was quite young. Um, and they um, in, before they sort of had the opening credits. I think there was a, there was a clip where um, Jess Phillips, because she was on the panel this week, the week that we're sort of filming, uh, she said, "By the time this goes out, Quarteng might not even be uh, uh, chancellor." And and the, it was cool because they film on a Thursday, releases on a Friday. Um, so obviously that happened. I don't. Liz Truss is a weird one in that she's been in government. For 12 years it's not like she's just been an mp she's held government yeah. positions um sort of minor roles quite big roles obviously as foreign secretary um lead sort of sort of like if you imagine like a, a two-pronged fork in a way uh with sort of johnson and, and trust leading uh the uk's role in helping ukraine um so she put herself on the map um she's definitely a very ambitious person but i think it's seen that it's completely out of depth Do you know what it reminds me of it's like um like watching your football club watching your team and that you think the manager's crap and the manager one day turns around and goes all right you come on the touchline 
you do it, you manage the team. And then you realize how difficult it really is. I think it's a role that she's prepared for her entire life and always wanted her entire life. Because I think anyone who becomes a, an MP wants to become prime minister. That is the end goal. That is what you want. Yeah, It's why I, I don't really want to go into that sort of role um, because I think it, it's such a toxic environment. But going back to going back to Liz Truss, I think she is yeah, completely out of the depth. Because yeah. actually when you look at amongst Tory MPs voting in that leadership contest, a lot of them didn't want her. They wanted Sunak. Yeah, they wanted Rishi Sunak to become prime minister, but the Tory membership wanted Trust to become uh, prime minister. So there's there's two things going on. Yeah, why do you think that was? Why do I think they wanted Rishi Sunak? I no, think no. Because, um, oh, sorry. I understand why they wanted Rishi Sunak, but yeah, I don't understand why the party uh, membership voted in yeah. this trust. I think because actually I don't know either. I've I spoke to a few Tory party members about this, and I think it was sort of hearing lots of it was about, you know, she's a low tax conservative. I think because of Sunak, there was all the hang up from COVID. And also, yeah. I think people forget that Co- Rishi Sunak was fined for breaking lockdown rules. No yeah. way. I think that's kind of been glossed under. With all the focus was on Johnson, actually, Sunak was, you know, also broke, also broke the law as well. Um, I think it's, I think it was because, you know, from there to her, to, Tory party members to the Tory faithful she sounded conservative she sounded like she wanted traditional conservative uh, politics um there was the whole accusation that she was cosplaying as Margaret Thatcher I don't think she was cosplaying I think they just wear similar clothing but it's it's politics you're wearing business attire you're going to wear end up wearing the same clothing you know yeah Starmer wears a suit yeah right? no one's saying that he looks like Tony Blair no one's you know saying oh he's cosplaying Tony Blair um and we've you know, with, with, with trust, I do. Yeah, there are there are some similarities, but I don't think she's cosplaying Margaret Thatcher. But yeah, I think it was because she was seen as being a traditional conservative. Um, that you know that sort of sort of resonated with people, and they were like, "Yeah, we want her. We want her to leave the country." And yeah. also, I think there was the Ukraine stuff as well, where it's seen as that she was being a leading figure in that. Yeah, she's a pretty uh, hawkish figure on um, leading leading the front for Ukraine. So I yeah. think that was a that was a big part to play because. It was kind of just right time, right place for her. In yeah, that, actually, in that when, you, when you consider when the war in Ukraine ha- when the war in Ukraine started, when the Russians invaded, it was at a time when Johnson was facing a lot of pressure because of party gates. So there was a lot, of, there was a crisis, and you know they say the best time to uh, sort of gain confidence or win an election is during a, is have it is during a war. You think of Thatcher in the eighties, the sort of, if you look at the polling back then, the record unemployment. Auckland's happens at the eighty four election. They win eighty three. Is it? Yeah, it was 80, at the eighty three election. They win a landslide. You yeah, know, it, it's it's that sort of. It's because I think in in the UK in particular, it kind of harbors back to sort of that you know the blitz spirit, that sort of coming together. We're at war. We're Britain. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We saw it during COVID. I think you know when you think about the clap for carers, um, that sort of camaraderie. Um, that I think we saw a lot. The sort of helping people. I know in my village there was a big drive. Um, where volunteers would basically pick up um, older people's uh, medications or prescriptions or food and drop it off at their house. There was that sort of coming together. Um, so I think, you know, trust clearly inspired, maybe it's the wrong word, but sort of clearly people saw that um, sort of coming together, yeah. uh, which it's been the complete opposite, I think. And I think a lot of Tory party members are regretting voting for her. Because yeah. she's U-turned on all of her policies. She's pretty much U-turned on all of her policies. Yeah, that's the thing that I don't really understand anymore. I don't understand how she can stay on as PM when yeah. you could effectively make the case that 
Kwasi Kwarteng was um, effectively carrying out her vision for the country. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the thing, is that Kwarteng, it's, it's quite ironic that, so a few months ago, Kwarteng signed into law um, a practice where businesses could replace striking workers with agency workers. Now, in the, in the tweet, and uh, you can you can find it and I'll send it, I'll send it to you, um, they said this practice used to be illegal, now it's an opportunity for business. Um, and I think it's kind of ironic that we've seen with Kwarteng is that Liz Trust said, right, I need you to do this, right? And Kwarteng said, all right, okay, I'll do this. I tell you what, I'll even go further because apparently he thought up, a scrap, uh, thought up a scrapping the additional tax band. Um, so he put those policies forward. Before that happens, it becomes so unpopular and Trust is like, okay, yeah, you've got to go. And like you said, how can she stay on when she was the one putting those policies in place? But it's just a continuation of Johnson. You think about Johnson. Announce a policy at nine o'clock, get ministers defend it at 10, and at 11, you go, hang on, no, we're not going to do it anymore. And then at 12, all the ministers who defended it, and now I've got to say why it's not a good policy in the first place. Yeah, I think there's a likely chance that she's probably going to get replaced with Rishi Sunak, or yeah. there's even talked of Boris Johnson coming back again. I, I don't, don't know how. Jo- there's so much baggage, and I think it would just kind of be, do you know, the, yeah, kind of relating it back to football, like you, you very rarely bring back a manager who's been sacked. Or, or resigned it's very rare yeah. i can only think of one case I, well actually there's been i mean there's been a few cases but it doesn't always work out you look at like allegri with juventus at the moment it's not it's sort of it's not working in that respect um but i don't see i couldn't see johnson come back sunak maybe because mps wanted him mps, MPs, MPs did want him yeah but, but then i think when yeah sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah no i was gonna say mps did want him but as soon as this trust became pm she effectively purged the entire cabinet of Sunak supporters. So it, yeah, there's, like, there's, there's a lot of that. bad blood there. Yeah, I don't, but yeah. So I think, but even then with Sunak is that, I mean, he's a, he's an interesting figure. I don't know if you remember during the leadership contest, he admitted, um, and they're saying it was a leaked recording, but when you look at when a leaked video, but when you look at the camera angle, the phone is clearly there, like the people are filming. And he admitted that he, um, tried to undo treasury formulas set up by the Labour Party in the early 2000s um, that basically allocated funds to deprived urban areas. That's the term that he used. And he wanted to undo those formulas so he could send it to comparatively better off areas. And yeah. this is a guy admitting this. And it's not even, I think at that point, he was trailing in, in the polls uh, against this trust. So he was doing what he sort of what he could to be like, hey, guys, look, I can do this. I can do that. Um, it was like when he announced, he, he announced a policy where he wanted to People who uh, vil- uh, vilify Britain would be sent to, would be referred to prevent, which is the UK's uh, counterterrorism uh, sort of rehabilitation okay. program. And it was, it was just saying these really absurd things that the majority of people yeah. look at and go, why would you say that? But then you have to remember, they weren't appealing to the majority of people. They were trying to appeal to, what was it, 160,000, 200,000 Tory party members. Who, yeah would hear policies like that and go, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think yeah. especially in the last couple of years where, you know, any sort of criticism of, of the UK and, and its government or its history or culture is seen as vilifying Britain or, you know, erasing history. Yeah, it's, um, I think... It's that sort of cultural stuff. Yeah, I think probably with regards to... I, I know the video you're talking about. It, I do think it's most likely a leaked video that came because it, the timing just seemed too perfect. The fact that it got uh, it got yeah. came out during the um, election cycle, and also um, I don't know the full context of what it was because I did hear him defend it in a uh, in a interview afterwards, where 
what he said was he was talking about taking uh, money which had broadly been given out and doing more targeted um, spending in yeah. deprived areas, which I am a fan for. And I think one of the biggest problems is that there is just money being spent uh, in a broad range where instead of doing that, what you really we really need to be doing is targeted spending. Where yeah. like, I don't know yeah, if you Targeted spending can work. I think we, we've obviously seen that um, throughout. I, th- I just think with, in terms, especially like the hang-up of austerity, when you look at austerity, for example, between 2010 to 2015, around 50,000 people uh, died due to austerity-related cases, whether that be due to cuts to public services, uh, cuts to welfare. Um, it, it costs, it, it did cost lives. And I think that's something we don't really talk about. I think we look at the death toll with COVID, but in terms of austerity, there's not really that, there's not really, no one really looks at that. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I, I just, I couldn't see, I, it's not that like I couldn't see Sunak as prime minister. I think he could. I think he's, he's clearly got something about him. He's got this charm that I can't really place. So I, 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 you know, I hear him. Though when he speaks to people, he does sound like he's speaking to people like they're five years old. I don't know if you found that. I feel like yeah, uh, yeah. that way is what's speaking. Yeah. Um, I think uh, when you sign on to politics and especially when you sign on to become PM, um, you do kind of sell your soul a bit. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think, that, I think that we've that. seen that with, with all the ministers who were in Johnson's government. You know, when Johnson, uh, when the, the Johnson's premiership kind of reminded me of a game of Jenga where we're const- where every block represents a lie or a scandal. And you're closely sort of taking away the blocks. At a certain point, you will remove one block and it will all come tumbling down. And in the case, the block that was removed that every caused the tower to, t- uh, to crumble was the Chris Pincher scandal, where um, Chris Pincher was uh, was found to have groped two. I think it was two men or, or one guy. But he he was found to he was found to have groped someone, um, and then he resigned or he was sacked. I think he was he, he was he was sacked. He was sacked. He got sacked or resigned. Um, where he left the role and then uh, Johnson denied knowing anything about because there were also previous allegations about Chris Fincher that were dealt yeah. with internally by the party um, and Johnson denied being aware of any of these previous allegations it then transpired that he not only knew about it he joked about it when appointing Chris Fincher to become deputy chief whip where we said oh yeah he's handsy that one Pincher by name Pincher by nature um, and then that's all this stuff stuff all this stuff starts coming out and then all these ministers one by one start resigning sunak was like the big resignation and then there was sajid yavid as well these big uh, yeah. sort of quite uh, big names within within the tory party at that point who resigned and then it just start that was the catalyst all these other ministers started resigning i mean with sunak it was clearly just prepare for a leadership challenge i mean his his campaign website had been registered from december 2021 apparently um and so you you had all of these ministers resigning but then you think all of you aren't doing this because you think it's the right thing to do for the country. You're doing it because it's the right thing for yourself to try and save yeah. face. And it's like, if I resign, I look like I've got principle. And it's like, well, you, well, you don't. You know, you're doing this to, to, to cover your own asses. And I think you could say that for any sort of ministerial resignation when there's a big scandal in any government, regardless of whether it's Conservative or Labour. Um, but it's just this idea of being seen to be doing something. As far as I was concerned, it was all too little, too late. Like if any of them had any shred of principle or integrity, when Johnson defended Dominic Cummings breaking lockdown laws, then they, that was the that was the time to go. Hang on, no, we're not going to stand for this. We we need to. But the, the thing is that they they couldn't. 
because you know that the Conservative Party at that point relied so heavily on Johnson because he was such a popular figure that you know you remove him and then a lot of those problems start. Yeah, and I think the fact that he got COVID uh, combined with the fact that he survived it did yeah. literally give him that role of a survivor. Yeah, and but that's the thing. He's always prided. He's always wanted his his hero was Churchill, you know, and sort of, uh, sort of Churchill's greatest uh, sort of feat. He's always known for being the prime minister who who led Britain during the war. He's often seen as winning the war, as seen winning the war because he was seen as a figurehead. Johnson wants to have his Churchillian moment. COVID is a, a pandemic is completely different to a war where it's not a case of, oh, gung ho, you know, rally the troops. It's a case of, you know, well, actually, it relies on expert advice. Same with war to, to a certain extent, obviously, to, uh, as well. But it's not really the same thing. So when the war in Ukraine happened, Ch- uh, Johnson, sorry, gets his moment to be Churchill. Yeah. And he can be on the front going, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll fight them on the beaches. We're allying president. You know, we're, we're working with President Zelensky. We're, we're going to you know, send the Russians back. It's that sort of rhetoric that I feel like he probably practices in the mirror. I think, if I'm being perfectly honest, he definitely did. He does. Is it, do, you th- do you reckon that's the reason why he became so hawkish on the Ukraine war to get that moment? I think so. And also, I think it was because of the Partygate scandal and everything that was unfolding. It's the perfect cover. It's, oh, why are you going to try and remove me from office? We, there's a war going on. We need to show our support to the Ukrainians. I think we saw recently when Nadim Zahawi. A couple of weeks ago, was on um, uh, Question Time, and he said Vladimir Putin he wants us to be divided, and it's like Vladimir Putin doesn't give a shit. Like, is like you know, it's that sort of constantly linking back to the war. There's a war going on. We need to work together. Well, actually, the UK isn't directly involved. Yes, we are sending arms and we're sending resources, but we're not. We don't actually have troops on the ground. Don't have troops on the ground, but we are training. Troops, uh, Ukraine yeah, we're training. Yeah, but we're not. We're not directly. Yeah. It's not like we're, you know, sending. Yeah. We've we've got troops. To train. We've got people training. We're, we're we're providing sort of military assistance, but yeah. we haven't. We're not directly involved in terms of we've got troops on the ground fighting. No, I think no. I think that would be a whole new level to the yeah. war. It's why um, I don't support um, Ukraine joining NATO, because if Ukraine joins NATO, one of NATO's big rules is that an attack on one, uh, an attack on a NATO state is an attack on all the other states. So all the other states yeah. have to send military support, including troops on the ground too. Uh, and in the context, obviously, with the war going on in Ukraine, if uh, Ukraine was to join NATO, well, then UK would have to send yeah. troops and then we would be directly involved. And that's just not something anyone wants. Now, I think uh, there's there's an effective argument for saying that the war has effectively become a proxy war between Russia and the West because Ukraine would have already survived for like a week into yeah, the war but that's if it, I the think, West had yeah, sent aid. Initially, but I think the the resilience that was, that was seen, I think the, the Russians said two weeks maximum is all it will take to, to conquer Ukraine. Yeah. By two weeks, I don't think they made it past the front gate. It no, was... but I don't think that the Russians um, took note of how much aid the West would provide. Yeah, no, I don't think I don't think so either. I think I was kind of I was aware of what was going on, but like vaguely because I've seen it in the news, and I was kind of going, "Oh, right, you know." But I think Russian, Russian, Russia, Ukraine tensions have always been have always been quite high, um, and it's always something that I've kind of been aware of, and I really probably should have been more uh, more clued into it being having this because I was considering I was studying international relations um but it wasn't really something we ever looked at and maybe it was something I should have just taken the initiative and, and researched myself um and I think when um 
the invasion officially happened and everyone starts reading on about it. And that's where like all the problems start because everyone, you know, over the pandemic, everyone was a vaccine expert, was an epidemiologist. Yeah. The war happens. Okay, I'm, I'm no longer an epidemiologist. I'm actually an international relations expert. You know, it's that sort of, and then, you know, it's why when people are advocating for a no-fly zone, it's like, why the fuck would you advocate for that? Just you know, that would just like cause war, more war. That would it directly impl- implicate people, um, uh, the states. Sorry. Um, yeah. So yeah. I just think there's so much danger, and like you said, yeah, I think the, the support for Ukraine, particularly in the West, like I remember, um, like I remember, like in the Premier League, for example, there was all like the stop the war because there were a lot of Ukrainian players there, and there's sort of the support. I remember at the Carabao Cup final, uh, I'm pretty sure. No, what was it? Yeah, there was obviously like all the sort of the Ukraine. There was obviously the, all the sort of Ukraine stuff, and I think that was kind of because I was sort of Roman Abramovich's um, then ownership of Chelsea. There was yeah. a lot of sort of issues with with Roman Abramovich as well. But again, he's kind of part of that. He's got quite close ties to Putin. He's an oligarch who, when the collapse of the Soviet Union, bought um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the state services that were were able to be bought for cheap, and then you you sort of run them with those yourself. Um, is sort of what's kind of been. What's, what's been happening in Russia? What's Labour's standing on the Ukraine war? Labour's standing on, on the Ukraine war is that they unconditionally support them and that they will do whatever they can to, to aid them in, in, in fighting against Vladimir Putin. Um, I think there's definitely a change from likely what, I don't know what the last leadership uh, would have said about Ukraine. I think we look at when the reaction to the Salisbury poisoning, for example, and Corbyn saying that he wanted to send, um, we should send the Novichok sample back to Russia for testing. Why would we do that? It's completely stupid. And also, even when you look at um, what Corbyn, for example, has said about the, the war in, in Ukraine and that, you know, we need to cease the fighting. And I don't think people understand, particularly on the left, and I've had this conversation with many people, if Russia stops fighting, the war is over. If Ukraine stops fighting, then there's no more Ukraine. And this idea that they, the Ukrainians should sue for peace is completely absurd. Like, if I, let's say I came to your house and I took half of your, and we were sort of warring over different rooms in the house, it's like, no, that this is my house. Like, get out. Like, you're not having any of the rooms. It's not like, all right, let's just settle this. I have, you know, the living room and the, and the, the hallway and you yeah. have the, the kitchen. So like, no, no, no. Like, get out of my house. Um that's what's been uh, going on. And I don't think a lot of people on the left really get. But yeah, no, Labour's stance at, at that point is unconditional support. And they will do whatever they can to aid um, uh, sort of the Ukrainians in their war, in, in their fight to, to stop uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, I don't know what their stance is on Ukraine joining NATO. I know what this government's stance is. Well, I heard Michael Go talk about this on the Laura Kunzberg show a few weeks ago, and he said he didn't support it. And that's something I agree with personally. Yeah. Um, how does the current Labour Party differ from Corbyn's party? Because um, it's quite a big shift from that yeah. really heavy left-wing politics to more of a centre-left. And yeah, well, I think, I think has done a pretty good job in bringing that round. That was so. That was the big thing. I only joined the Labour Party in January 2020 after the after the election loss in uh, 2019, the heaviest election, the biggest election loss for Labour since 1935. Um, and that was down to most of the factors. I think Labour's Brexit stance, which is something at the time I supported, and now I, I think no, I shouldn't have, should that that should never have been uh, should never have been the policy. Um, also, Corbyn as well being deeply unpopular um, as a leader. Um, 
and also there was that, the, all the anti-Semitism stuff. I think Keir Starmer, when he joined, when he became leader of the Labour Party, had very big challenges to deal with. The first one yeah. was, you know, becoming a credible opposition that can that can become a government. Uh, the second is trying to get rid of the Tory Party, though that sort of links. But and then the third one is was dealing with anti-Semitism within the Labour Party um, because it was there was that so, it was rife, and I wasn't part of the Labour Party at that point, so I don't know what it was like. Um, but from speaking to Jewish members of the party, they said it was, you know, it was awful and that you didn't feel like you could talk about it. I think because of um, the Israel-Palestine conflict is obviously cited um, a lot. I think when, yeah. by contrast, when you look at party conference in Liverpool this year compared to four years ago, when you had people on the front uh, sort of chairs of that conference waving the Palestinian flag around the time of, and I, you know, I, I support the, the free Palestine movement, but what I don't support is anti-Semitism. And I think what's been allowed is that people have been able to conflate anti-Semitism with pro-Palestinian liberation. Um, I was speaking to like Labour Friends of Israel about this and they were sort of in agreement as well. Um, but yeah, no, those were the big, those were sort of the big challenges that having to deal with uh, as a party. Um, and I think that Sama has, has done that. And actually, when you look at polling amongst Jewish Labour members, they are a lot happier with the party and they actually feel like something has been done about it. Whereas when you, I don't know if you've read the ECH, uh, ECHR, no. uh, EHRC report, it's one of those reports where you read it and you read, you read like about it in the media and you go, oh, that's bad. And then you actually read the report and you go, okay, this is really bad. The, the, the basically just the brush over sort of the prioritization of different forms of racism. And it's like all forms of racism are deplorable. But even then, like Corbyn's unwillingness to acknowledge anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Um, when he was asked to sort of uh, say that he condemned anti-Semitism and he goes, I condemn racism in all its forms. It's like, okay, condemn anti-Semitism. Though. And it's like, I condemn, let me be clear, I condemn. It's like, no, 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 just could you know, I'd be asked to condemn all of it. Like, you're, obviously, you condemn all of it. We've established that, but specifically condemn anti-Semitism. Yeah. They couldn't do it. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think people are a lot happier in the Labour Party now. I think when I was at conference this year, my first ever one, there was, I, was, I wasn't sure what it was going to be like because I'd yeah. heard things about party conference. And I think the year before in Brighton, there was still a bit of, you know, there was still a lot of division. But I think a lot of the people who have left the Labour Party, it's probably for the best because they're, they're not serious about, it's almost like a grift. It's like, say with my page, for example, you could argue that my page's success relies on having a conservative government in place. And I would agree with that. Um, and I, I think it's it's just all part of this sort of grift that people have where they re- want to remain in a permanent state of opposition because then they don't really have to deal with the problems. It's like yeah. Jess Phillips said um, in an interview with Owen Jones, I'm left wing in the real world. And it's about making those pragmatic changes. So moving more towards the centre, Tony Blair talked about this a few months ago, maybe it was a year ago in, in a talk where he said, if, you, if you're trying to win people over, you have to do it from the centre. If you've got someone who has voted Tory all of their life, what makes you think they're suddenly going to vote for a, you know this radical left-wing programme? They're not going yeah. to do that. You have to appeal from the centre, and then over time, you can gradually move people more to the left, talking sort of, and promoting more left-wing policies. But if you appeal from the centre, you can start winning people over that way. And I think that's kind of what Starmer has done. But then there's, there's also a mix. You look at GB Energy, for example, which is going to be um, publicly owned. 
um, the commitment that um, to renationalise public uh, the railways once their contracts have, have ended with the current um, with their current uh, shareholder with their current stakeholders or companies that they're owned by. Um, so there is like a broad range of policies there, and I think it's everything that people can get behind. I think especially at the moment with the energy crisis, people have seen that pri the privatised services aren't working when you've got oil and gas giants making billions in profits off the back of struggling people. Um, you know, it's almost like well. It's clearly not working. Yeah, I think uh, with regards to the energy crisis, that's something, especially in the last couple of years, uh, during COVID as well, that's kind of been yeah. brought to light quite heavily because yeah. I think for every nation, especially the UK, which is an island nation, being yeah. energy independent is something that's really important. And I think yeah. there's a big push towards um, getting us into that direction. So well, that's the thing. Yeah, heavy. we are in. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say there's heavy investment in solar, wind and nuclear as well now, yeah. which is obviously a good step. Yeah, I think we saw, like, I don't know if you saw the other week, Greece, um, for the first time in their history, they ran, the whole country was run 100% on renewable energy. Um, and that's what we should be pushing for. You know, think we're, we're a, like, yeah, as you said, we're an island nation. It's fucking windy. We should be investing in this stuff and we should be looking towards the future. Um for renewables because you know oil it's all a finite resource and it's not going to be around forever and look at the damage that it's doing to the planet as well we need to be more pragmatic and i think that's kind of what labor have done in terms of pushing for green policies under johnson there did seem to be this push for green policies though so when you look at the raw sewage being dumped into british waters and there was a bit of like are you sure liz trust seems to have just gone yeah we're not going to do that we're not committing to you know we're not we're we're not that fussed about committing to net zero or any of this. We'll start fracking again in this country. And it's like, wow, yeah. like it's, um, but then I think it's, again, it's, it's appealing to the Tory party faithful. It's like, you know, back in my day, we didn't do that. It's like, okay, all right, but it's not your day anymore. It's, it's our day. Like, come on, we need to, we need to, we need to modernize. Is that, do you think the Labour Party is a lot more united now from the um, Labour conference? The face it, I think it appears united. Um, I've definitely felt, very comfortable there as someone who was probably center left when i was there there was no like issues people weren't like oh you're this you're that because that's what because i was going to conference like i did get recognized from tiktok and everyone was very lovely everyone who came up to say hello was, was really lovely um and there were some good conversations there there was no yeah there was no like um there didn't seem any problems like i think you expect with the leader speech there might be a few heckles but there was nothing there was nothing but unity there but then i think a lot of the people who um, don't like the Labour Party at the moment aren't in it anymore and also because of there's been a lot of expulsions due to anti-Semitism prescribed groups for example um, there has been that um, there has been it does on the face of it that the party does appear united um, but then I think you know a lot of people will be upset about certain things being done and it's it's you know I, I've often said like the people who are shouting the loudest aren't actually in the party or they, they don't really care about winning they don't care about actually making the difference it's all about ideological purity which has always been the downfall of the left this commitment and also kind of seeing it with the with the with the riots but say with this trust as well with her policies her ideology um this commitment to ideological purity that on paper yeah can work but then in the real world not so much um, yeah. and that you know you have to adapt and that you have to be pragmatic it's like pragmatic politics in a, in a way um and i think you know with the the budget that was announced it was 
the budget that the mini budget that got announced the other uh, the a few weeks ago. Trust in Quarting in 2012, along with Dominic Raab, Preeti Patel, and I think Chris Skidmore, they co-wrote a book called Britannia Unchained, which advocated for the same policies that we saw announced in that mini budget. And look at what's happened. <laughs> look at what's happened to the to the, to the country. Um, so it just proves that you know ideological purity doesn't doesn't work. And I think in terms of Labour, they've kind of gone, okay, all right, we need to be more pragmatic. So what kind of stuff got covered in the Labour conference then? It was all sorts of stuff that was covered. A big thing, there was a, a debate on a motion to for the Labour Party to push forward PR, uh, proportional representation, um, to replace first past the post. That was something that was discussed. That motion passed. It hasn't become Labour Party policy. I don't think it will. Um, I, I, I couldn't see it, especially at the moment. I think the idea of trying to, I think out of all the things that are, that all the biggest priorities in this country at the moment and all the things that need to be dealt with, reforming the voting system isn't, isn't on, isn't that high on the list. Nor yeah, should I it be. Yeah. Um, there was the stuff about sort of the renationalization of railways once, um, once their contracts end with their various, um, with the companies that own them now. Uh, there was GB Energy, which was announced at, uh, at conference. Um, there was reversing the top rate of um <clears throat> there was reversing the decision to scrap the additional uh what's it scrapping the, the the scrapping the additional tax fund the Tories announced that they the new turned on Labour said that they would return that and then use the money that was created from that to invest in uh in, in the health service. There was also I think there was uh the push to have a national care service because there's not a national uh, there's not like a state health uh, state like care service for um say OABs people who are disabled. Um, there's not the uh, there's not that um, support. It's all private and it's also really expensive. Um, and by sort of creating and also carers are on very low rates of pay. Um, and now of course you could argue that it, that shows that they actually want to do it. Like that that shows dedication. It's why you could argue that you know you don't want people going into professions solely for the money. Um, which can always it's like when people go, why do you want to be? A, it's like I want to be a lawyer. Why do you want to be a lawyer? Or they get paid a lot of money. Right, so you, don't really care about all you care about is money which is fair enough but just admit that um but yeah no there was that there was that as well um I'm trying to think what else there was a lot um yeah no i'll, I'll see if there was any if there was any more but those were like the, the main things that stood out to me personally what um what is labor's policy or kind of vision going forward for the nhs because obviously the nhs is yeah um well, it's obviously under yeah. a lot of stress, and I would now I wouldn't necessarily say it's even a case of um, underfunding. It's just mismanagement of funding, if anything. Yeah, I don't know too much about that. What their policy is, I think the thing is with the NHS in the UK is that it is the closest thing the UK has to a unit to to a religion, like a like a, like a state religion. Obviously, Britain is a multicultural society, and there's hundreds of, and there's like you know, there's lots of different religions, different cultures. But the NHS seems to be the one thing that binds everyone together. You think like the 2012 Olympics, for example, there was a big focus on the NHS. That was something that was celebrated, and I think it is something that should be celebrated. Um, I honestly don't know. I, the thing is, it's there are a lot of there are. If you look at in Europe, mainland Europe, for example, there are health. There are different types of healthcare service. I think we've kind of got into this thing where it's like we see healthcare as binary. Where there's state, where there's like state healthcare, or there's like the US model, yeah. and there that's not the case. There are loads of different models for healthcare that should all be explored. Um, 
I remember West Streeting talking about it uh, a few, and he said it was likely that some privatisation might be needed in order to deal with, with with the problems that are being faced. I honestly don't know because I was always someone who's like, you know, keep the NHS. I think when if you said to me keep or abolish the NHS, I would say keep. But I'm open to different types of healthcare models. Something that's something I need to look into. Like I know this in Germany is like the Bismarck model, which is kind of I don't really want to. I'm not going to talk about it because I'm not too clued up on it. Um, but there are different healthcare systems out there that should all be explored. I think the second it's like you're removing the NHS, that's when like people get into a frenzy. It's like no, you can't take away our NHS. We love the NHS. You know my, my you know my, my parents worked in the NHS. My nan worked in the NHS. It's it's because people are close ties to it. And it's a big, it's one of the, it's a very big employer in this country. Yeah, I think it might be the biggest employer in the country. I'm not entirely yeah, sure, but I think... it's, it's one of the biggest employer. Yeah, like it is, it's a massive employer in this country. And it's something that attracts the best and brightest around the world that want to come to, 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 uh, to the UK to, to work, to work in the NHS. Um, but even, even, even then, I mean, like we're seeing it with, with junior doctors in the UK, the stress that they're under, well, they do, they end up going to Australia. And they're they're far more they're far happier over there. And after three four years, they can get um, I think it's either residency or citizenship. So yeah. there's there's sort of that, and it's trying to make it more attractive. But I think the the initial cuts that were made to the whole service at the start of the 2010s due to austerity again it all links back to I think a lot of the problems in this country link back to austerity, and even even actually even further because a lot of the fund cuts to public services were happening around 2007 2008 when the Labour Party were in charge. Um, it was just a continuation of that. So I think it, there's there does need to be some reform. I don't know all too well. I'll probably go away now and, and, and look more into it. But I think it's that there's that there's more there's more health models other than the NHS, and they should be explored. And then it should be decided which is the best one to do. And yeah. that should be expert driven. Um, not you know we should not have a referendum or whether to keep or refor- keep or abolish the NHS because I think that would be disastrous. And referendums don't work anyway. Like, do you think that's a possibility? Um, I don't know because I think it's become so entrenched in people's minds that the NHS yeah. is, is it like a big part of you of UK culture. It's yeah, no, like, that's what I was you know, thinking. I don't. I maybe, but I feel like the person who does it will either be the most unpopular figure in Britain or the most popular if they reform it and patient satisfaction goes up. Because at the moment it's at all time lows. I don't. Know if, Therese Coffee announced that um, you would get. Um, they said you wouldn't wait longer more longer than uh, you wouldn't wait any longer than two weeks for a GP appointment, and I think forty eight hours for a, it was either A and E. I think I can't remember like the the exact. It was something along those lines, and actually, it's like that shouldn't be the case in a country like the UK. That we should not be saying yeah. two weeks for a GP appointment. Um, you know that there needs to be a, there's a far more efficient service. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what the what the alternative is. Definitely not the US model of healthcare, because actually they spend more on healthcare per citizen than we do here in the UK. Now, of course, you could argue that they're a bigger country, but then and different health issues. Um, but yeah, so I, I honestly don't know. What Labour's uh, stance on immigration? I don't know. See, that's um, the thing. So, uh, sorry, uh, with regards to obviously legal immigration and the illegal immigration that's going on at the moment so the so the first thing there's no such thing as illegal immigration no one can be illegal and the way that the uk asylum system works here is that you have in order to claim asylum you have to be on british soil so 
the only way you can do that is if you can't you know get on a, a plane or whatnot and you have to make that j- difficult journey across the channel then that is the only way you can get there in order to claim asylum and okay is that how it works yeah that's that's how it works you have to be on uk soil in order to claim asylum okay. um now obviously like there are 22 <laughs> yeah it's, it's a bit like you know it's kind of like that weird sort of like um it's a very sort of weird system um and there's been a lot of pushback, particularly around sort of Brexit, for example. There was a lot of push for uh, controlling immig- for stronger controls in immigration. The thing is, is that in order to control immigration, it relies on uh, cooperation with other states. So when Britain was a member of the European Union, they were part of what was called the Dublin Agreement, where member states within that work together in order to control uh, levels of immigration. So it's like saying, OK, we're trying to process this many people hold fire with those guys and when we process them you can let that let them come through because we're no longer in that agreement there's no obligation for states to cooperate with that um so in terms of controlling uh, uh asylum seekers refugees coming across the english channel it relies on cooperation with the french now if the french don't want to cooperate okay they'll just like, send them send them your way um actually when you look at numbers of um in terms of asylum seekers refugees the UK accepts less than France and definitely less than Germany. We don't accept that many. I think it's just because it's a lot of media reporting about it that we think it's a massive issue. Um, in terms of Labour stance on it, they want to deal with it. Um, but I think it's more sort of dealing with the people trafficking elements of it and the, the people yeah. smugglers. Because um, that is a major issue. These are people who are exploiting some of the most desperate people on the planet. Yeah. Um, and making a lot of money from it. And that's the thing we should also acknowledge. A lot of the asylum seekers and refugees that are coming across the channel, they are in back in their respective countries, they are considered well off. They're, these are, they're spending a lot of money. These are people who um, are considered, and the people who aren't well off, they're the ones still in in their, in those respective states. Um, these are, you know, and I, I always say, oh, well, these people be doctors and they can help. And it's like, that shouldn't matter. These are people that need help. And, as a, and this country is often identified as being a Christian country, one of the biggest uh, Christian teachings is love thy neighbour, and so we should be helping these. We should be helping these people. They want to crack down on the, the sort of the people smuggling element of it, and th- those people should be held to account, and they should be in prison for what they do for exploiting vulnerable people like that. Um, how would you go about know. doing that? How would I go? How would I personally go about doing that? I don't well, know. Well, what, well, what can be done to? Make. Well, for starters, so the 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 aspect, the criminal agent, the agency that deals with people smugglers have had their budget slashed quite a bit by this government. Now, you know, if you have less funding, then you there are less things that you can do. Um, so there needs to be that thing as well. There's also that the, you know the government the, the, get people suggesting that the the navy should patrol the British waters to, to pick up people. Now, under international send them, well, under um, international maritime law those people are if you're if you the first thing is like if you see someone at uh, risk in sea you help them so they're going to be helped they're going to be brought up and they'll be taken to, to the uk or uh, sent back depending on if there's an agreement made with france um obviously there's like the rwanda deal as well which is a whole don't even know where to to begin to begin with that one um has that been implemented the Rwanda deal. So yeah, the, the Rwanda the Rwanda deal is a thing, but it, it is not. Um, there's been no planes taken off yet. There's been no asylum seekers put on planes. There's been no refugees. The idea is that they're creating uh, processing 
centres in Rwanda to process um, asylum seekers and refugees. But they're not actually going to get admitted back to the UK. They're just going to get integrated within Rwandan society. Um, now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to go, if I was said I was going to go from one country to another and I got to that country and then they sent me to another country, be a bit miffed. Um, the intention of, of sort of uh, moving in. And also there was a report that was done on Rwanda as a state and their uh, sort of the way that they paid. And it found that they ha- that their government had killed political opponents and the LGBTQ plus uh, refugees and asylum seekers would be at risk of persecution in that state. Um, why we would put people through that, I don't know. I don't, you know, definitely don't agree with that. Um, but also, I think it, and it's also costing the British taxpayer millions. And it's, it would be cheaper. I think they found it would be cheaper to house refugees in the Ritz than it would to send them to Rwanda. Uh, just to give you an idea of, of sort of the cost element of it. Um, but it's, um, it, I, but I think again, policies like that, it's just a dog whistle. It's just to get people to shake their fists and, and, and infuse, because there is a particular type of person in the UK that sees the suffering of people less fortunate themselves and they get off on it because it, it you know it makes them feel better about their circumstances um so yeah, i think there's always there's always that thing as well do you think the labor party is going to be able to bring the nation together because um i'd probably say due to a lot of reasons that we are at a time where everyone's kind of equally divided yeah. in terms of pretty much everything how can the labor party kind of turn that around and kind of bring it I think it will take more than just a political party. It requires so many different factors um, of bringing a nation together. Because you think we've had six years of, the last six years of a lot of political turbulence where people have turned against one another. You know, I've seen it, you know, where people's families are completely split solely on how they voted on Brexit. Because Brexit to a lot of people, it's almost like a, if you're speaking to someone politically about sort of political topics, it's like, how did you vote, leave or remain? And that will decide how you interact with that person following that conversation. I think it's sort of addressing a lot of different factors. It won't just be a political party that makes the difference. It's a lot of different people sort of coming together and trying to be as pragmatic as possible. I honestly don't know what the answer is because I think it will take years to restore any sort of sense of, of unity in, the, in this country. Um, I can't see it. It won't happen within a year maybe not even two years, it will take way longer than that. But even then, you never know what's going to happen, you know, five years on from now, they completely change and the whole country becomes divided again. Um, we're always going to be, I think we're always going to appear to be on the basis of a divided nation. In fact, the only times I've seen this country properly united is during like the, what was during the World Cup and the Euros. And even then, like the fallout from that, like then the whole division start coming back again. Um, so it's really, I, I honestly don't know. I don't. I, but as I said, I don't think it will just be a change in political party that causes any unity. It will be um, a lot of different factors. I don't. I don't know what those factors are going to be. Um, thank you. I think. Sorry, it's been a sec. Uh, yeah, I think um, Labour's probably got quite a good chance of winning the next election, especially yeah, when you look at- with everything going on, but. I think, uh, yeah, I never thought of it until you said it, but it probably is going to take way more than a political party to bring yeah. the country well, together. When you, look at, when you look at polling, Labour are doing a lot better than the Conservatives, and that can be put down to multiple factors. I would say um, 
that the conservatives have are completely trashing the economy and there's also like that sort of well what's the what's the alternative because that's what first class the post creates it's like almost seen as like the lesser of two evil system kind of what uh with like the american uh, presidential system they use for elections it's like okay well i don't want you but also i'll vote for you not because i want you it's just i don't want him um it's that sort of uh, system in place um i i think it's likely that labor will I don't know what the majority would be like. In the current polling, it would be a landslide. Um, but at the end, we don't know. There might be another twist to the tail and the Conservatives could claw it back. Could they at this point? It's not looking likely. We don't know when the next election will be. By next month, we may have one if, if Trust gets forced out. Because I don't think they could force Trust out and then go through a leadership contest within themselves. No, I think they then, can't do that for a year. No, or they wouldn't. Yeah, they can't do it for a year. But then I think under the current rules i'm sure because it's not a written con it's not like a uh what's it codified constitution in a sense like they can completely it's uncodified so they can change the rules if they want to okay um i don't i yeah i feel like in the current circumstances they will probably make some concessions and and force her out but when that will be we don't know um sooner rather than later hopefully um but again, I think if, if that does happen and she's forced out, let the Tories elect a new leader and then go to the polls. I think people deserve that. I think, you know, that we've had, what well, in the time it took me to do my GCSEs, A-levels and my degree, I had we'd had three prime ministers and there was a fourth one on, on the way. You know, that, yeah. that, that shouldn't that shouldn't happen. Um, and also, it's been, what, we have four chancellors every month of the year. It's um, completely absurd. And we shouldn't, as a as a country, stand for it. We deserve um, stability, and um, at the moment, we're not getting it. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you on that. We deserve stability, and also, we definitely do deserve better as a nation than what we are currently being given. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I don't uh, do. I think that I think the Labour Party will will be, you know, kind of a, a lot of people would just see it as a concession. I think one of the biggest criticisms of Starmer is that he's boring. But actually, I mean, I don't, I don't personally don't think he is. But also, you know, is that such a bad thing when you consider the eccentric leaders we've had? Like, we don't need comedian. We don't need a comedian. We don't need a. Um, we don't need a. You know, a. Uh, we don't need comedians or showmans in charge. We need, you know, strong pragmatic leadership. Um, and when you look at Starmer, his record as a, as a public servant. A dedicated public servant uh, working in the CPS and services that he provided there. Um, this and as leader of the opposition, it's a guy who clearly is a statesman, knows what he's uh, doing in that respect. Um, but um, I guess we'll see. Who knows? Maybe in ten years' time, I'll be advocating for a Conservative Prime Minister. But you know, I don't. Uh, I I honestly don't know. I feel like at this point, it can only. Uh, you know. Who knows? <laughs> Do you think he? will be able to deliver on his leadership because obviously well, like you said um it's the, easy to kind of stand in the opposition and say you can do this and that and that but when push comes to shove do you think he will be able to follow through on his promises yes you see that's the thing one of the biggest criticisms of starmer was that he wasn't um following he abandoned a lot of his 10 leadership pledges um and that was kind of cited as well you know if we're calling out johnson for for not um uh, for basically u-turning everything like how can and star was calling him out for that why star you turn a lot of his leadership pledges for me i understand why people felt that way for me personally i think if you it's all well and good saying you're going to do abc 
but when it comes to actually implementing those it might be okay we can't do a we can't do a we can't do c we might be able to do b it's um it's just about being again it's about being pragmatic it's like say in football terms if you're playing a 4-4-2 and that formation isn't working you switch around some of the players and it's still not working again you change formation you try something different you, you you're pragmatic that's what you need to be um i think a lot of uh labor's policies at the moment resonate with a lot of people um and i think i mean you can look at um say like their energy plan their bills for energy plan um you know i honestly don't know i would like to think i would like to say yes and i will say yes um maybe i'll be proved wrong i hope i'm not because you know it's not about pride it's about the country and i think it's about helping it should be it's about helping people but again i honestly don't know i'm gonna say yes because i I think yeah i think that there will be uh so what's next for you what's next for the champagne socialist (laughs) so tiktok is obviously still going then my account is probably on its last legs at this point i've got that little sexy account warning there um but yeah that won't go anywhere uh do you want to talk talk to me about that what happened it's because like some of my videos have been taken down because they've been flagged for like I'll give you an example. I got banned from going live for um, adult content and nudity. Um, bearing in mind, I was ba- I was probably wearing the jumper I'm wearing now, which I'm religiously stuck to, um, and uh, I was fully clothed. So quite how I was got done for nudity, I'm not too sure. Adult content, I don't remember talking about anything uh, particularly adult or uh, adult content, but maybe I'll be proved wrong. Um, so that was how I got banned from going live. Then in regards to um, the whole account warning thing, it's just because videos get flagged, people mass report it. I did a video criticizing um, leftists who condemn Western imperialism, but um, uh, don't call out Russia or China for their for their role in uh, in their sort of their imperialism. Um, and then that got video got flagged as well. But then it got restored. That's the thing. A lot of my videos will get flagged. And then I contest it and then they get reinstated. Sometimes it doesn't happen. So that's just a case of me building up a load of violations, um, uh, content violations. So I honestly don't know when the account will end. I've got like some insurance policies in place at this point. I'm building a second account as well. So, but again, yeah, I honestly don't, don't know, um, like what's going to happen. So, um, but then I'm also working with a outlet called Byline Times, which is an independent media outlet, completely subscriber funded. Um, and I, I actually was in London yesterday filming with them, talking to Extinction Rebellion protesters um, and sort of just up oil guys. So there's a lot of there's stuff in the pipeline and doing stuff, and I'm enjoying it. But I'm taking it at my own pace. Yeah. I, I, I feel like with a lot of this stuff, it can blow up really fast, and I. I like consistency. I want to run things at my own, at my own, um, at my own level. Like recently, I was um, a couple of months ago. I was approached to do a TV show that's currently being aired at the moment, and I was really interested in doing it. And I wanted to do it, and then I went through the audition process, and unfortunately, I didn't get it, and I was really bummed about it because I was like, I really wanted to do it. And then actually, I thought to myself, I wasn't ready to do that sort of stuff. Because it's, it's one thing like me controlling on TikTok, that stuff that I put out, I edit that, I run it myself, I'm I'm in control of that. But being being on TV, a show that's been edited that you're not in control of, that can be quite daunting. And also there's the whole like privacy element as well, because I'm quite a private person in terms of, though I have quite a, a fairly big platform, I suppose. 
I have managed to maintain a lot of anonymity in a way in that people know my first name, they know my age, they know where I stand politically, but you guys don't know where, really know where I live. You don't really know yeah. um, my last name, for example, which is something I keep very private because it's not only just me that gets affected, it's everyone else around me. Um, yeah. So I'm private in that sense. So that was the thing that like, really sort of dawned for me. I was like, shit, if I go on TV, like people are going to want to, people will know all of this sort of stuff and I'm just not ready for that yet. Um, so... Yeah, I I take it at my own pace for a lot of it. But the byline stuff is coming along really well. I'm really enjoying working with those guys, putting out content for them. Um, and it's a you know it's a symbiotic relationship. So we we work for each other. Um, yeah, and that's been that's been really good. Um, and I'm it, that was actually something that I because that was another thing. Like I approached them. It okay. wasn't a case of them approaching me. I, I literally like I saw they follow me on TikTok and I followed them back. I was like, oh, I really like you guys. And, um, if you ever want to work on anything, let me know. And they were like, yeah, let's do something. And that was me making that happen. Um, I don't, I want to take, like I said, I want to take things at my own pace. I like being in control of stuff. If I'm not in control of it, I don't like it. It's um, it's kind of, it's just one of those things. And people may be like, oh, it's a bit, you know, narcissistic, a bit controlling, but it's like, no, 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 this is my life. And it's not only my life, it's other people around me. No, I understand that completely. No. And I think, um, so, you know, I'm, very much in the sense in the mindset of i don't begrudge anyone doing that it's why like i um yeah I, i'm very sort of it's a, again comes back to being pragmatic and um that's why i like to think i am yeah um what's it like talking to extinction rebellion that was really interesting that was really fun because obviously we've seen a lot of them in the media at the moment and a lot of the yeah. tactics that they were pulling and actually uh, where we sorry i, I was going to ask um how gone by the way but i hope it all still picks up um, yeah, yeah yeah it does but, um also i was gonna ask how would someone go about getting in touch with them no no we literally um we just so there was a what was called a festival of rebellion yesterday outside the tate modern um, okay and we um we just rocked up um and we just started speaking to people it's really easy to just get in contact, especially those sort of things. You just we just went out to people and said, "Hi, would you guys like be interested in asking some questions for Byline Times?" Some people say, "No, fair enough, you know, you can't." And then other people are like, "Actually, yeah, you know what? Um, like, uh, let's yeah, let's have a conversation." And we were asking them just one question. We said, "How far is too far when it comes to protests against climate change?" And um, that was like the opening question. And then we just kind of went from there, like hearing what they had to say, and we would uh, base our our follow-up questions on what they were saying so you know it was it was a really good experience because obviously we've seen a lot of them in the media and there's been a lot of um stuff on social media as well about how they're you know this and that and i was speaking to and my gen my main takeaway is that these are people who genuinely care they're not doing it um because you know they like being a nuisance they're doing this because they genuinely care and the things that they're doing they they genuinely believe in um and there were, there, you know, there were, we, there were we, we spoke to people who had done sit-ins on roads and I asked them, like, what's been the response? And they said, it's been fairly positive, which surprised me. And I think really? in the footage from the interviews, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and then, yeah, obviously you've had some negative responses, but they said the worst thing was that people just ignore them and like they just walk past them. And um but no, it was really, it was really good to speak to, to speak to those people. and. Um, very like very intelligent people who clearly care about cause and 
you know you can't you can't fault them in that sense you can argue that their tactics are divisive and um counterproductive and i would definitely argue that um at the time but then speaking to them i I understood why they do it. i may not necessarily agree with it but i understand why they do it okay interesting that'll be someone i'll be in uh i'd be quite interested to kind of get in touch with yeah literally like if you just you look on their socials and you'll see when their um when their demos are or their rallies just rock up and just start speaking to people because people want to talk they want to get themselves out there they want to promote their cause and that was literally what we did we just rocked up we we planned it i knew we were going to do it uh, about a couple of days ago and it was just we just rocked up and we just we just got going and um it's been a very it's been a very enjoyable experience yeah brilliant well thank you very, very much for your time um, no, thank you. it's been thank really you interesting me. really enjoyed it thank you it's been yeah. good fun no it's been quite uh interesting having you on and uh listening to uh everything no thank you thank you for having me thank you for giving me the platform i really appreciate it we'll uh, get going but no i really enjoyed it thank you for having me Alan. i really appreciate it yeah, cheers thank you harry yeah, thanks so yeah, much no. i appreciate it cheers bye